Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome Heather Wolf, Vice President of Clinical Development Operations at Decibel Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Heather. Thank you, thanks for having me. To start off, we'd love to learn a bit more about your background and career journey and how you got to where you are today. I actually fell into the industry back in the late 1980s. I was hired as a contractor to double-check pagination in a paper NDA. So all those stories about having these big trucks filled with paper that go down to Washington are all true. (laughs) Lots of paper involved there. So that's really how I broke into the industry. While I was with this company, I actually was put on the task of reviewing adverse event case report forms on paper because they were short a data manager. So started reviewing data and really got hooked from that point forward. Following that first stint in the industry, I got into a data management position as a contractor for real at a company called Genetics Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was hired permanently after six months in the data management role. And then from there, uh, went to other companies, both large and small, having the opportunity to build data management groups from the ground up and then branched into technology and um, was able to select and implement different technology platforms at various companies, working very closely with my IT colleagues at those companies. I also had the fortune at the time of being able to design homegrown systems and put those in place at these pharma companies, some of which lasted a really long time. Uh, One of those systems was a case report form tracking system and query management system back in the day when we had paper forms. Also wrote an EDC package, uh, which was also implemented and used for a while at uh, a large pharma company. From there, I was fortunate enough to be able to get into other functions such as biostats, clinops, overseeing those functions doing a little bit of hands-on work in those functions and really getting to branch out and get some experience in other aspects of the industry as well. That journey over about three decades has taken me to where I am today at Decibel, heading up clinical development operations. And in my role, I get to oversee clinical operations, data management, regulatory operations, and medical writing. Great. Thanks, Heather. I think like many of us, you've fallen into clinical operations and data management. Out of curiosity, how have you seen that area to be able to attract talent? And why do you think it is such a, I think, strong breeding ground for folks that are just, you know, coming out of college, but are like me, you know, unsure of what what I was going to do? And how has that evolved over time? Yeah, I think in the clinical operations function, you are able to interface with a lot of different functional areas in support of clinical development and bringing a drug to the clinic for testing in humans. And in that respect, you're able to try out many different focus areas 
And, you know, part of attracting talent in my career has been the ability to provide opportunity to young people, especially, or people looking to change their careers. So by putting them in situations where they can interface with other functional areas and get their hands wet and kind of fry on different hats without worrying too much that they're going to do some serious damage is a great opportunity and platform for people to get into the industry. Yeah, that certainly resonates with me. You know, for the folks that are thinking about breaking into the biotech industry, any advice around what's the right phenotype if you're thinking about breaking into clinical development or operations? What, what should folks be looking for? Good question. When I was growing up in the industry, we often looked for people coming from a large CRO because those were really training grounds for people. You would go through an intensive program for a year or two at a company like Parkcell, Quintiles, and really get some depth of knowledge within a particular function. Armed with that, you could come into a smaller company on the sponsor side and be comfortable in that position while branching out and trying some things that are really stretching you a little bit skill set wise. So I think that still today is a good way to get acclimated to the industry. Coming into a mid-sized company that's innovative, I think is a super experience if you can find one, and there are plenty out there, because they kind of teach you how to think out of the box. You've got maybe your CRO experience telling you a straight line path for doing something, but sometimes that's not the best way. Sometimes, you know, just by getting outside of that comfort zone and looking for other avenues to get to a certain milestone a little bit faster, a little bit better, that really creates other opportunities as well within the company. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about the work at Decibel and what you're working on now. Most of my experience has been in oncology companies. And I have to say that when this decibel opportunity came up, I was very excited to get into something other than oncology. And it's a little bit ironic because after starting at decibel about three years ago, the first program that we have in the clinic is a small molecule called DD020, which is um, used to prevent cisplatin-induced ototoxicity in patients receiving high doses of cisplatin as chemotherapy. All that training in oncology actually came in pretty helpful, being a decibel and running this particular program. But aside from that, the hearing space is, is just such a new uh, frontier for many of us. And having to learn all about hearing from the science all the way up has been amazing. And the more I listen to these very smart people from academia that make up most of decibel at this time, is really just a privilege to me. And I'm learning something new every single day. We are excited about the gene therapy programs that we're working on. And in the same way that gene therapy has brought promise to the eye, we are bringing promise to the ear using the same type of platform. Yeah, I, I found that the folks that have deep backgrounds in running clinical trials and oncological indications tend to be some of the best ClinOps folks that are out there. Because if you've dealt with the complexity that's involved in running one of those programs, you can really deal with anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. And I think that was good training for me. This first study that we're running with our small molecule is a very complex study design as well. 
And we're having to coordinate not only the oncology work, but also other specialty areas like audiology. We have our ENT colleagues on the study who are actually administering our drug, but there's a lot of logistical challenges with that as well. We need to get the patient to the sound booth, which might be down the street, to get their audiograms at baseline and then following cycles or along with cycles of cisplatin. And the ENTs have to do their work and follow up with the patient. And of course, the oncologist needs to make sure the patient is doing well on their chemo treatment. I'd love to hear any lessons learned that you have on, you know, learning an entirely new therapeutic area and a number of different indications within that therapeutic area and how you went about doing so and what advice you'd have for folks to really get ingrained in understanding that new therapeutic area before you start running clinical programs in it. Yeah. And sometimes you're um, building the plane as you're flying it. Uh, Yeah, of course. I think it's really important to talk to as many people as you can, certainly within the company, but also experts outside of the company, your KTLs or KOLs. And even within that population, there are a lot of differing ideas. So it's a little bit difficult to discern which opinion is going to work the best for your study or your company or your program. And sometimes it's a little bit of trial and error. Um, So I think taking real-time learnings from what you decide to apply internally or with your trial uh, is really important. And to do that early on, you're able to pivot if you need to pretty quickly. I've been doing a lot of literature reading. So lots of papers out there usually on various topics. And, and again, you're, you're seeing conflicting information a lot of times. But I think one of the keys is to be able to kind of hone in on what the signal to noise is and pull together all these common threads that you're seeing in the literature out there to be able to bring the best practice back to your team and your study. Thanks for sharing that salient advice. Would love to talk a little bit about your current pipeline and you know where current trials are in development. I understand you're you're actively recruiting for some trials, I believe. Yeah, we have one trial in the clinic right now, and that's a DBO20 small molecule program. We are in Australia and the US for that study. Have been recruiting now for the past year or so. What's interesting with this trial, as with our colleagues' trials as well, is that COVID has had an impact on enrollment in the study, um, as well as logistics, and to try to figure out how to work with sites and patients to alleviate any concerns around COVID uh, has been really interesting. And obviously, we have not crossed this bridge before. So um, kind of the sky's the limit to us all for thinking of innovative solutions to get past this. We are currently moving our first gene therapy program towards the clinic as well. So doing a lot of pre-work on that, running a lot of non-clinical experiments, and just planning for the future around that study. Great. I imagine now must be one of the most challenging times to run a clinical program, but you know, perhaps one of the more exciting times to run a program in the sense that there is lots of room for innovation and and FDA and IRB seem to be understanding the need to relax some of the old ways of doing things as long as obviously patient safety is held to the highest priority. I'm curious what uh, what you've been seeing in terms of what's been, you know, the silver lining associated with COVID as it relates to running clinical trials. Yeah, that's a great point. I think 
the way that the regulations have bent a little bit has been really amazing. And just seeing the vaccines come to the clinic so quickly really proves that we can do this in less than 10 years, which you know is often the norm, at least for small molecule programs running phase one through large phase three studies. We can do this a lot faster. We can bring amazing therapies to patients without having to put in perhaps the long pathway that we're used to putting in. One of the main impacts on the study that we're running at Decibel right now is around institutions allowing studies that may not have life-saving therapies, allowing them to enroll due to the extra exposure to outside people, people outside the institution itself. Um, We've had a few sites on our study who have actually closed enrollment to the study for periods of time while their COVID fluctuations have evened out. With our study, patients have also been anxious about having additional personnel like an ENT or an audiologist in the room with them during chemotherapy because they're afraid of the exposure, afraid of contracting COVID or getting in a cab to go down the street to visit a sound booth for their audiograms. Some of them have been really anxious about doing that too. So we've been trying to think of ways that we could modify the study, which FDA is completely open to at this point in order to uh, reduce that anxiety and capture the data that we really need for the study and maybe not focus so much on the extraneous information that we're gathering. Unfortunately, with our study, the audiograms are key to uh, safety and efficacy. So we couldn't bend there, but I know a lot of my colleagues are able to capitalize on that freedom a little bit more than we are. Some of the the other things are monitoring. So (laughs) I know you're familiar with every six or eight week monitoring visits by the CRO, having to go on site, trying to book time with the investigators while they're there, trying to find space to do the monitoring. With us, at least, our sites are generally prohibiting on-site monitoring. So um, we've pivoted a little bit to do more remote monitoring. Now, some sites aren't even allowing access to the EMR system remotely. So we're a little bit stuck with those sites. The sites that are allowing remote monitoring, I think that works pretty well, actually, as long as the CRA can get on site at some point before you need to call your data clean or lock your database. Um, I think it works pretty well. The sites for which we can't do remote monitoring or on-site monitoring might prove to be a little bit of an issue closer to database lock, unless we can catch up on the monitoring towards the end of the study. In terms of monitoring, are you taking a risk-based monitoring approach? And have you changed the benchmarks associated with, or the, or the guideposts, I should say, associated with risk-based monitoring since you're not able to go on-site? How, how have you been thinking about that? Yeah, um, for this first study, we have not adopted the risk-based monitoring approach, but during our protocol and our case report form design, we have been really thoughtful about the data that we're asking for. Like you're familiar with probably, phase one studies often collect a lot of data, more data than you probably need. And oftentimes that's coming from the MD, (laughs) from the research or the academic side. With us, uh, we have a pre-seasoned team on the clinical development side. So we sat down and we said, okay, what data are we really going to use for this study? 
the logistics are so burdensome for the site and the patient that we just want to reduce anything extra that we can um, take out of the protocol. So the data that we have should, for the most part, truly be monitored. So we haven't had to change anything there. Really a testament to creative problem solving, given the challenges of the pandemic, you know, something that we haven't ever had to go through as an industry before. And, and yeah. you're right at the forefront of that. So that's that's yeah. incredibly challenging, but also must be quite exciting and invigorating. Yeah, it is very fun. And it's great to talk to the sites on a regular basis and get their feedback and try to incorporate that to make it easier for them to run the study at their sites. But hopefully some of these changes that we've made over the past year will stick around and um, make clinical development a little bit easier going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Any, anything we can do to make it easier on patients, reduce the burden of data collection, I think would go a long way. I'm curious, what are some of those innovations that you've been seeing over the last year that you hope are still in existence post-pandemic? Uh, well, aside from the remote monitoring, I think we're reaching out, at least at Decibel, more and more to collaborators to obtain data sets that they have, historical data that they have doing natural history studies as well. And I hope that trend continues as the FDA and other regulatory agencies are getting more open to leveraging natural history, real world evidence, patient reported data, which again might lighten the burden on clinical protocol design in the future. So I hope that sticks around. And as we gather more and more data and the data sets get bigger and bigger, the tools for cleaning that data are getting better, and that will just make analytics even stronger. It's rare to have the experience that you've had over the last you know, year and change, not only because of the pandemic, but going from a privately held company to a public one. From your perspective in, in clinical development and operations, what changes have you observed in terms of now working at a publicly traded company, if any at all? So there's a lot of rules, apparently, when you go from private to public. And um, I think training the company on those rules is pretty challenging for the leadership team. Basically, it's around what you can and can't say publicly as a public company. There are some pathways that information sharing has to go through. We can't go to a cocktail party anymore and chat about specific things that we're working on or results from those uh, studies. So we have to know exactly what appropriate looks like and also what the pathway will be for press releases, industry presentations. There are certain levels of approval that we have to go through before issuing any of those right now. So a lot of controls in place. Out of curiosity, have you noticed a change since you've gone public in terms of the quality of investigators that you're able to attract for your clinical studies, or has there been no change? Yeah, great question. Um, We went public in February, so it's only been a few months. I think Dustable maybe is unique, given the type of company we are in the therapeutic area. We have had really high caliber investigators this whole time. Uh, We have amazing collaborators who are experts in their field, really leading edge people who remain enthusiastic about what Decibel is doing. Um, And we're getting new reach outs every week from people out there that we haven't even talked to before. So Mm. we really haven't noticed too much of a change there, but I'm sure as Decibel moves down the development pathway, we'll be gaining even more interest from people. You know, as you look forward now over the next five to 10 years, 
What are some significant challenges that you think we as an industry still face that you think need to be solved for? And you know, think about the future entrepreneurs that are listening to this podcast in terms of what are significant problems that still need to be solved for? Um, I would say there's still a lot to be fixed maybe uh, or solved for around data capture, cleaning, and analytics. There's so much data out there and the fact that we're now beginning to get our heads around leveraging EMR data and other data that's out there as source that we haven't harnessed before or we haven't figured out how to standardly and efficiently harness is pretty exciting to me. Like EDC took many years to be adopted and for us to figure out how to use EDC in the best way. I think we're starting to get there with the electronic records that exist. I know that we're working on fire standards in order to get EHR data out. So I think that consortium is doing an amazing work that's really going to be impactful for us in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that front. Well, on that note, Heather, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for sharing your career journey and your inspirational background and the exciting work that's happening at Decibel now. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.